I met him 15 years ago, I, I was told there was nothing left. No reason, no uh, conscience, no understanding, and even the most rudimentary sense of life or death, of, of good or evil, right or wrong. I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. As a matter of fact, it was. I shot him six times. I, I shot him in the heart. And this man, it, he's not human. Boogeyman is coming. Leave me alone. She's gonna get you. She's gonna get you. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Holmes Movies Podcast. I am your host as always, Anders Holmes. I am going to be writing solo on this episode as Adam is unavailable. And uh, I am going to be talking about films that he hasn't uh, seen yet, so it wouldn't make sense for him to be on it. I am going to be talking about the Halloween franchise and particularly Halloween Ends, which is most likely the final Halloween movie until they basically reboot the franchise again or make a sequel to this film don't know how um but yeah i feel like if <laughs> i mean if they are going to do a sequel i mean i have no idea what they're going to do given how halloween ends ends uh basically or as i feel like some people want to call it halloween please 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 just fucking end already jesus christ <sighs> michael myers he just you just can't quite seem to get the boogeyman in the ground and dead but anyway yes i love the halloween franchise i i think all the films are fun and great and of course some sequels are better than others some are you know pretty good i really like halloween h2o and halloween 4 and some of the other sequels aren't as good um halloween resurrection is a very weird uh film halloween 6 is a depending on like what cut of the film that you see it, it's just I prefer the producer's cut of that film, but then again, it's it's not a great film anyway, but still the producer's cut is better than the theatrical cut. But anyway, yes, I, you know, I just love the, the, the Halloween franchise. And, you know, I mean, like who knew that the first Halloween film was going to be a huge success? I don't think John Carpenter or Deborah Hill or Mustafa Akkad or Erwin Yavelins or even... Jamie Lee Curtis and Donald Pleasance had no idea Halloween would be held to such high regard and talked about for 40 plus years. You know, John Carpenter, he's one of my favorite directors and he's just amazing. And he was just, you know, riding on 
on the success of directing Assault on Precinct 13 and he was just about to touch the peak of his career with Halloween and they were down in Pasadena, California and they were making a film, $300,000, a budget that John Carpenter said, I want $300,000 and I want my name above the title. I mean, no, none of them knew it was going to be a success. They were just any kind of eager filmmaker trying to get their feet in the door, you know, unaware that they were about to change horror history. Jamie Lee Curtis, daughter of Janet Lee and uh, Tony Curtis, she became a hallmark of the early slasher film boom of the 80s, and she was given the crown of the Scream Queen. Halloween's success at the box office just, you know, brought in this big slasher film boom, like eager and hungry up-and-coming filmmakers saw Halloween and essentially used the movie as a blueprint, you know, for their films. And, you know, you know, Sean and Sean Cunningham and Victor Miller, who directed and wrote the first Friday the 13th, which was released in 1980, you know, they basically ripped off Halloween for, for their equally iconic franchise starter. You know, Fr Friday the 13th is a, you know, a fun summer camp horror film that led to countless sequels and, you know, Jason Voorhees became a cinematic icon like Freddy Krueger, Leatherface, Pinhead, Ghostface, and of course, Michael Myers. Halloween, uh, like a bunch of other films that, you know, a bunch of other horror films that were being made at that time, you know, you know, it represented a change in the horror genre and a lot of movies like it brought on this change and took the horror genre to new and higher levels. You know, it's really influenced a lot of filmmakers and it's even influenced someone like me who hopes to one day make a horror movie or at least get a chance to work on one or two. It's... I mean, it's hard to explain how much these movies mean to me, but I'm gonna do my I'm gonna do my best uh, uh, with this uh, little uh, review. Um, as a horror fan, I always feel like there are certain films you should own if you are a lover of the genre and want to be taken seriously as a horror fan. That's open to a debate, but again, this is just my opinion. Uh, so those films are uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, Night of the Living Dead, The Exorcist and John Carpenter's Halloween. Uh, directors that came along during the late 60s and the early 70s, they really changed the course of the horror genre and set the stage, you know, for a new era of horror movies that would be different and, you know, would be, you know, you know, from, you know, be different from what we, what we would, you know, come to expect. You know, directors like Toby Hooper, Wes Craven, George A. Romero, and John Carpenter, you know, these guys just brought horror away from, you know, the, you know, gothic castles and monsters, you know, we had monster movies of the 1930s and 1940s. You know, we had nuclear science fiction horror movies in the 1950s and Harama Horror and movies by Roger Corman were also popular at this time. You know, but by the late 60s, you know, after the release of movies like The Haunting or Carnival of Souls, which is a, a fantastic film, and Night of the Living Dead, you know, horror was going through a big change. Horror movies were you know, v you know, very much of the gothic variety, as I've just said, but, you know, these directors were taking us away from that. And, you know, we were, you know, they were bringing these terrifying tales into our reality. Night of the Living Dead was this first social political horror movie of its time, and it's still tremendously, tremendously relevant, like the majority of all of George A. Romero's movies. You know, both that and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, they just started this whole, you know, wave of low-budget independent movies that became extremely prevalent at the time. And, you know, movies that were being made outside the studio system and were taking a much more uh, different approach to filmmaking. You know, Halloween not only is one of the best horror movies ever made, but it is also one of the most profitable independent movies of all time. Like I mentioned before, you know, Halloween's success brought in this whole new wave of horror, you know, the slashers. You know, movies or imitators, however you want to call them, you know, Friday the 13th, Prom Night, 
The Burning, My Bloody Valentine, The House on Sorority Row, and Happy Birthday to Me, they all owe their success and their cult fandom to Halloween. And maybe Black Christmas, because that also was a slasher film, and Black Christmas and Halloween, they both had, you know, they 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 kind of laid the groundwork. And also Mario Bava's uh, Blood and Black Lace as well. That's kind of like an early slasher film before they became really popular. I mean, John Carpenter, he was a big up-and-coming filmmaker at this point. He had Assault on Precinct 13 under his belt, and I think he probably still needed to prove himself a bit more. You know, but if anyone who has seen Assault on Precinct 13 and also Halloween, you can tell that this is there is a there is a master of cinema at work when you sit down to watch these movies. You know, he you know, he got final cut. He got his name above the title. He did the music. He wrote the 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 screenplay with Deborah Hill, who wrote the wrote pretty much most of the of of the dialogue for the female characters and you know gave them different personalities and voices and a lot of what made halloween a a success was what deborah hill and john carpenter brought to the table and deborah hill was an important and underrated figure in the world of film and she should get she should get mentioned much much more than she than she does i mean she produced a lot of movies like clue which is great the dead zone with Christopher Walken, The Fisher King, which is just brilliant. You know, Robin Williams, Jeff Bridges, that movie's fantastic. You know, when I think about Halloween, one of the successful aspects of it is that score, that very haunting, but that haunting and simplistic score that Carpenter brought that brought to the brought to the film. You know, without that music, the film wouldn't wouldn't have its identity and it also would just feel tame and boring you know that music gets you pumped it fills you with fear like anytime i sit down to watch these movies and the score comes on you know i just get really excited it's just like yeah i'm about to watch a fucking halloween movie it's gonna be amazing you know even though the movie was hit the film was hindered by its low budget to attract big names they really lucked out with getting it the cast that they got you know particularly getting you know jamie lee curtis to keep that Alfred Hitchcock sh- uh, Schichel <laughs> sound like Sean Connery there for a second second Schichel you know of course she was you know Janet Lee was Marion Crane who gets killed in the shower in the about 30 minutes through uh the movie which was a very cool and unprecedented thing to do in movies at that time you know having that connection to uh you know having that connection between Psycho and Halloween was really important and Jamie Lee Curtis you know became as I said, the quintessential scream queen of the 1980s. She was in Prom Night, Terror Train, Halloween 2, which came out in 1981. That was directed by uh, uh, Rick Rosenthal, who also directed Halloween Resurrection. And the other actor that is, you know, so much part of the franchise and its legacy and who who personifies the characteristics of Captain Ahab and Moby Dick is Donald Pleasance as Dr. Samuel Loomis. You know, Samuel Loomis is aware of the evil inside Michael Myers, the young boy who murdered his sister on Halloween night 15 years ago before the events of the 1978 movie. I mean, that prologue that takes place in 1963, so good. Love the cinematography. Love it so much. It's such a great opener. Michael Myers is described as pure evil, and he tried to keep him locked up. It it didn't work. He somehow got away and somehow knew how to drive a car, which was explained i think in one of the movies or it was cut out i'm not quite sure but that monologue that samuel loomis gives to uh charles cypher's character sheriff lee brackett where he's talking about you know that he had the blackest eyes the devil's eyes um you know he was simply he was purely and simply evil like you really you really feel his fear and worry 
And you know that, you know, Loomis needs to be taken seriously when it comes to Michael Myers or as the shape, which he's known throughout the film, you know, when he's wearing the Captain Kirk mask, which is, you know, that's the Halloween mask. It's a Cap- it's a Captain Kirk Star Trek mask. You know, it's such a, you know, it's one of those movies that's so reliant on atmosphere than blood and gore and the cinematography by Dean Cundey and John Carpenter's direction just adds so much to the atmosphere and tone of the movie. You know, they make suburbia seem scary. You know, even in scenes taking place in the daytime, they just, you know, you're always keeping an eye on what's, you know, on the screen and, you know, mainly on what's happening in the background. And you're trying to see if there's something going on and if there's anyone there. You know, Halloween makes something that appears so safe look so frightening and dangerously foreboding. Like you're, you know, like you're what, like, like imagine you're walking through a foggy graveyard at night, which, you know, is generally creepy to begin with. You know, you take that feeling of walking through a deserted and foggy graveyard at night and put it in suburbia, it's going to give the audience the same effect. And it works so well. Like, every time I watch this movie, I'm always on edge every time, even when I know what's going to happen. And, you know, John Carpenter, he stretches that tension out and makes it so unsettling. Still effective today. Every time I watch Halloween, there is always that sense of unease and fear, like, even when I know what is going to happen. It is something that some filmmakers who were making slashers at the time kind of got wrong or didn't do well. You know, this is what made The Thing also very impactful as well, which is another film of his I love. And the tension in Halloween just keeps boiling over until something jumpy happens, like Michael Myers popping out of the shadows to kill someone in a very creative and creepy kind of way. You're always on edge, even in the quieter scenes, you're expecting Michael Myers to pop out at any moment. You know he's there, you can feel his presence, you don't know when he's going to pop out. And as an audience member, you know what is going on. You know what is going to happen. The problem is you were powerless to stop it. And uh, these tropes of these horror movies have been spoofed and paid homage by other filmmakers, and I think if done right, it makes for a scary watch. And there was a documentary that came out uh, around the time when Halloween was 25 years old. Might have been a bit before Halloween was remade by Rob Zombie. And it, you know, it was it was after Halloween Resurrection was released and everything and out on VHS or DVD or whatever. And in the interview, uh, Kim Newman, who's a writer and he's also a critic and he writes for, uh, he writes for Empire sometimes, I think. And uh, he said in the documentary about the, Halloween fran- about the Halloween franchise, I think it's called Halloween 25 Years Later or something like that. He said that a lot of these movies, like Friday the 13th, that followed the guidelines of Halloween, you know, they may follow a lot of the guidelines, but the problem was, and this is what Kim Newman said, I'm just paraphrasing what he said, they didn't work because John Carpenter did not direct them. And, you know, they didn't have Michael Myers either, who I think is one of the best horror villains to ever grace the screen. Yeah, of course, Friday the 13th has Jason Voorhees, but they didn't have him until the second film. In the first one, they had, you know, Pamela Voorhees, who was, you know, pretty creepy, and uh, Betsy Palmer gives a pretty good performance, even though she was in it for the money so she could buy a car. Kill her, Mommy. Kill her. You know, like, the moment... You know, he puts on that William Shatner mask, Michael Myers. He becomes that face and everything humanistic about him goes away. That's his identity. You know, he's pure evil and you can't stop him and his actions are unpredictable. You know, there's a lot of mystique about him and I like that. You know, Nick Castle's role as the shape in the first Halloween is so convincing and his physique as the shape when he's standing still and just, you know, just looking at people from across the way is like, it's so scary and ominous. And like, of course, the cinematography and the lighting helps, you know, you know, especially when the mask is like shield and darkness and you just see the mask, you don't see his body and everything like that. He's almost like a ghost. 
you know, like every cinematic trick and element, you know, just adds a more sinister feeling to the character. And like the opening tracking shot of the in the beginning of the movie is brilliant. And it was one of the first, you know, few horror films that took a voyeuristic turn and puts you in the killer's shoes in POV. And it's, you know, one of the best bits of cinematography that I've seen. And, you know, Dean Cundy is, you know, he's one of the best cinematographers of all time. You know, worked on so many great films like, you know, this, you know, The Thing, and also Jurassic Park. You know, that's a, you know, that film looks amazing. Of course, there have, been other, uh, there, have, there have been other actors donning the mask of Michael Myers. There have been a lot of actors playing Jason Voorhees and Leatherface as well. You know, but there's only been one Freddy Krueger. There's only been one Chucky. You know, you know how many times, you, you know, no, no matter how many times the mask changes between each movie and actor, you know, Nick Castle to Dick Warlock to George P. Wilbur to Don Shanks to, to Chris Duran to Brad, uh, Brad, sorry, Brad Laurie and... And even Tyler Mayne in the Rob Zombie Halloween movies, they all brought their different style to Michael Myers in The Shape. You know, even if the movies didn't satisfy or, or, you know, didn't satisfy me or completely work, they still managed to be imposing and frightening figures throughout each movie. I kind of wish the continuity of the mask kind of stayed the same because it changes quite a lot. Uh, particularly in Halloween H2O, where multiple masks were used. And also in Halloween 4, there's like, at one point, Michael Myers has got like this beach blonde... Uh, did I say beach blonde? Bleach blonde. <laughs> Bleach blonde hair, so he looks like he's from a Billy Idol uh, tribute band uh, for a few frames, which is a very weird moment. And then it goes back to the weird mask that they had for that movie. But in Halloween H2O, there's a there's there's some they, they used multiple masks that different makeup artists brought to to the film. And in and in one scene in the film, in the documentary that I think on the Scream Factory Blu-ray, there's like a they 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 point out which mask is used during each you know in scenes during when the cuts in the edit and stuff, which is kind of funny. <laughs> Such a weird thing that they have with the masks in each movie. I mean, I do feel some of the sequels and the reboots to Halloween do take away a lot of that uh, mystique and scary aura of Michael Myers, particularly when it's revealed that he and Laurie Strode are connected. In Halloween 2, it is revealed that they are brother and sister. A plot point that uh, did fuel problems for all the people involved making these movies post-Halloween 2. I guess you can blame John Carpenter and six cans of beer for that. Because of that, particularly around the middle part of the franchise, you could just feel the struggle of the filmmakers trying to make sense of that plot point and trying to add motivation to uh, Michael Myers' actions. Michael Myers is a villain who doesn't need motivations, and the movies are better for it when they don't get too complicated. You know, that aspect that their brother and sister has been reviewed reviewed removed sorry from the other from the new films directed by david gordon green which i am very thankful for because it is a stupid plot point that was written into the 1981 sequel and uh some of the sequels in the franchise are good and enjoyable like the the halloween franchise maybe is a little bit messy but it's not as messy or as polarizing as some other franchises i mean look at the texas chainsaw massacre <laughs> franchise for instance look like all the various fucking timelines in that in that franchise it's crazy you know, of course, some of the Halloween sequels are better than others. You know, some are good, some are bad, but, you know, they are strangely watchable. Like, they're all fun to watch. You can, like, revel in in some of the good aspects and kind of laugh at some of the bad aspects and, like, you know, be perplexed by some of the plot points they have in the films. But, you know, they're fine for what they are, but, you know, none of them are going to be as good as the first Halloween film. I mean, 
with the sequel that Rick Rosenthal directed, Halloween 2, which came out in 1981, you know, they did a good job in connecting it to the first Halloween, you know, given the fact that most of the creative people behind both films are working on it. You know, you know, they, you know, Dean Cundy was the cinematographer on both films. The Both films look exactly the same. Like, you could easily edit the two together and it could be viewed as one single movie. I think someone did that with the Evil Dead trilogy. I'm not quite sure. Um... I think with any Halloween movie that has Laurie Strode in a hospital nursing her wounds, you can kind of see the cracks of the narrative of each movie and trying to make a movie around that. It's a little bit, it's a little bit more prevalent in in Halloween Kills. I mean, in Rob Zombie's Halloween too, that whole that whole hospital sequence is a dream is is a dream inside Laurie's head. Like he just gets that whole thing out of the way in the first few minutes. I mean, Halloween 2 is a bit slow. I do recognize that the atmosphere that Rick Rosenthal creates, and it is very palpable with fear. It keeps you invested, even it does, even if it does take a very long time to get going. I think, like, the last 30 minutes are the best part of the movie, where Michael Myers finally catches up to Laurie in the hospital, and, you know, man, you know, he, after, you know, dispatching a whole near-empty hospital of doctors, EMTs, and nurses, he finally gets... <laughs> he finally gets a... Catches up to Laurie, who's still very sort of wounded and, uh, you know, you know, still, you know, in a very weakened uh, position. But of course, Samuel Loomis, the worst uh, psychiatrist in the world with a gun, comes to her aid and uh, blows himself up with Michael. And we see him again in Halloween 4. He has some of the worst burn makeup I've ever seen. And the continuity of, of the burn makeup changes a lot in the fourth film and then it changes a lot in the into the to the fifth movie as well i feel like even with the weird and unnecessary third act reveal that their brother and sister michael and laurie i mean it, it it does lift the film up from its near dullness you know but you know i feel like it, it, it gets people to the hospital even though it just it feels very forced into the movie and it doesn't really make sense. But, you know, it gets people to the hospital and it's exciting when Laurie and Loomis are together and they're trying to fight Michael and everything. And that's where the film does feel quite exciting. It does take a while to get exciting, but I think it I think it's fine for what it is. It's not it's not as it's not as bad as some of the other ones. I don't I rate it higher above like Halloween five or Halloween six and Resurrection. Um, it's pretty fair to say that they made this movie a lot bloodier than uh, the last movie, you know, given how big and bloody uh, horror movies got in the 80s. I mean, look at all the movies that Tom Savini worked on, like Dawn of the Dead, and Friday the 13th, and The Burning. Like, those films are just, just blood, like, at the screen. And it's amazing. I love all that special effects work. And um, they were very much capitalizing on the you know, the slasher boom and adding a little bit more blood into the film, which I think John Carpenter, he directed some of the reshoots and adding a little bit more blood into the film, which I think Rosenthal was a little bit uh, annoyed about. But yeah, I mean, Halloween 2 is a little bit of a slog to get through, but it is, you know, it's fine for what it is and it connects nicely to the first movie. And it's nice that all of the all of the people who worked on the first movie or most of the people who worked on the first movie worked on the second it's almost
almost time, kids. The clock is ticking. Be in front of your TV sets for the horathon, and remember the big giveaway at nine. Don't miss it, and don't forget to wear your masks. The clock is ticking. It's almost time. Halloween three, season of the witch, which came out in 1982, I think. Yeah, it did come out in 1982. Um, you know, it was supposed to be the first of many anthology films set around Halloween, and I thought that would have been cool to see, you know, had Season of the Witch been a huge success. You know, putting Halloween in the title must have been confusing for people because they expected Michael Myers to show up. He does in a trailer for Halloween, the movie, which is playing on a TV set in one scene that takes place in a bar with the actor Tom Atkins, who's the hero of the film. I think if they just dropped Halloween from the title, like the, like the, the in Facebook... I think it would have been a mildly bigger success than it than it was. But this is a very underrated and very creepy film, you know, that wasn't afraid to break some taboos and get all dark and bleak. You know, Tommy Lee Wallace, who worked on um who worked on the first Halloween film as a set designer, and I think he was also an editor as well on it. I may be wrong. I mean, he showcased some very confident uh directing with Season of the Witch. And he also directed Fright Night Part 2 and It, and those films are very well directed as well. You know, it's nice that a lot of the crew members worked, again, like from Halloween 1 to 2 to 3, like it was the same crew, which is nice. There was a nice little continuity of the same people working on the film. And also John Carpenter and Deborah Hill produced the film. And John Carpenter wrote the music with Alan Howarth, who also would compose the music for the other Halloween films up until... Um, uh, Halloween H2O, you know, Dean Cundy, cinematographer again. And Tom Atkins is a very capable and fun lead as the, you know, the everyman trying to stop the apocalypse. And Dan O'Hurley, Hurley, sorry if I said his name wrong, who plays uh, Connell Cochran, is a, he's a terrifying, and, you know, he's, inc- I mean, uh, Dan, Dan O'Hurley, he's, he's incredibly creepy and convincing as uh, as Con- as Colonel Cochran this just he's such a creepy ass villain in this movie they really did push the envelope a little bit with this movie it, it, particularly in the scene with the Cupfer family when they get killed and uh Tom Atkins character Daniel Chalice witnesses what Colonel Cochran has I say keeps sounds like I'm saying Colonel Cochran Colonel Colonel yeah <laughs> falling over my words now Colonel Cochran uh C O N A L has planned on, you know, he's he, he sees what Cochrane has planned for Halloween night. And uh, the scene with the Cupfer family, with the... Happy, happy Halloween, like that moment. That is some ghoulishly scary shit. I mean, it's pretty disturbing as well. I mean, even though this movie was not a big success, I do commend it for what it was doing. And it was effective. It lingers with you in all the you know, in all successful and satisfying horror movies do. It was a pretty ballsy and nihilistic movie that ended on a morbid cliffhanger that I thought was bold for the time. But of course, the audience wanted Michael Myers. Mustafa Akkad, the executive producer and gatekeeper of the franchise, he wanted Michael Myers. And he would, ret- ret- eh. and he would return once again in 1988. Now, Michael Myers has come home. He has returned for one more night of unholy terror. Michael! He's here to kill that little girl and anybody who gets in his way. Oh, God! Who's going 
going to be next? Ah! <laughs> Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers. The Thorn trilogy, which is what I've referred Halloween 4, 5, and 6, um is regarded as one of the debatable low points of the franchise. I say debatable because you could say that you could make that argument for each period of the Halloween franchise. You know, cinema is subjective and everyone is going to like and is, you know, everyone's not everyone is going to like and hate the same things, you know. I mean, I don't hate these three movies. They are weaker cinematic efforts. Yeah, but they still have their fun positives and have a sense of watchability. They're still easy to watch even though they're not great. They're not hate watches. I always like enjoy watching them when I watch the, all the movies, but you know, they're not slogs to get through, but they are weaker films. You know, it's you know, same with any other, you know, classic horror franchise. You're always going to have, like, some weak points. But I do think Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers, is a pretty damn good sequel. And uh, director Dwight H. Little, he did a pretty nice job on it. I think the crew utilized the location of Salt Lake City, Utah very well to be their version of Haddonfield, Illinois. It's got nothing on the John Carpenter original. You know, it's got absolutely nothing on it. But I do like it how it has the same atmosphere and tone of the first one. And Donald Pleasance is a wonderful presence. Hey, that rhymes. <laughs> I mean, he's great in the film. And so is Danielle Harris and Ellie Cornell as Jamie Lloyd and her foster sister Rachel Carruthers. You know, they steal that whole movie. You know, they are the hearts and the MPV, M MVPs of the movie. You know, I really like that relationship between Jamie and Rachel. You really invest in it fully and you really want them to make it out. You really want them to make it out alive. I liked the ending too, and it was, it was slightly reminiscent of the first Halloween. You know, like Season of the Witch, it was a bold and promise. It was a bold and promising ending. Uh, I only wish they followed through on it with Halloween Five, which came out a year later. Like they were basically drunk off the success of Halloween Four, and they went straight into production on Halloween Five, and they did not have a complete script and story. And you can fucking tell. Help me, help me, now! We both know he's alive. But you know where he is! Halloween 5. This time, they're ready. This time, he's unmasked. And this time, he's back with a vengeance. Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers. Like, every time I watch Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers, I do sit there and think about all the decisions that were made with that movie. It is a movie that really does feel like it was made up on the spot. They were really just making things up as they went along during production. I mean, I can sit through it. But every time I watch it, I always feel like there is a better movie inside the one that we got. The screenplay is not great. It really lets the side down. And I disagree with the decision to kill off Rachel. I think that's one of the worst aspects of the movie. I understand the reasons behind it, but there is a Rachel slash Ellie Cornell sized hole that is never really filled by any by any of the other characters in the movie. Not even Tina, played by Wendy Foxworth, can fill it. 
and no one is captivating as Rachel except in the movie except for Danielle Harris as Jamie Lloyd who is spectacular and she carries the whole movie on her shoulders like she's amazing I mean she gives an incredibly tough performance as she is mute for most of the runtime of the film and you know if Halloween 5 didn't have her it would have fallen apart you know Donna Pleasance does feel a bit wasted in this movie and all the thorn curse of thorn stuff really you know no one really had an explanation for it you know they didn't you know anyone who had an explanation for it just wasn't explained properly like it's just like anything everyone who was involved with halloween 5 they wanted to leave all that for the sequel like with like for instance who the fuck the man in black was like don shanks who played michael myers and five you know he played the man in black too it's a strange little movie and halloween 6 the curse of michael myers is also just as perplexing but the but the producer cut of like of, of Halloween Six is the better version to see, as it does explain the Curse of Thorn stuff better, as you know, best as Daniel Ferrans the for, uh, the screenwriter could. It's you know it's better than the theatrical cut, but that's not saying much. Halloween Six, like Five, it's it's like a it's a broth that's been spoiled by too many cooks, uh, and it was also the first time with the Halloween franchise was now a studio film and not an indie production. Like the Halloween Six had the luxury. I'm being sarcastic, okay. They had the luxury of going through the test audience part of movie making. And because the test audiences consisted of nothing but teenagers who couldn't follow all the Thorn stuff, they reshot the film and re-edited it and just changed it from, you know, if you look at the producer's cut, it does feel like, you know, of course the film isn't as great, but like it still feels like a complete film and you know it fits more with what halloween 5 is you know donald pleasance couldn't return as loomis for the reshoots as he had already passed away and um both this that film and h2o are dedicated to him you know the the, the theatrical cut of Fla- halloween 6 is a flashy fast-paced and incoherent mess of a film i guess people can debate whether this film is better than halloween ends i guess um but um yeah i do prefer the producer's cut i you mean if i if i wanted to sit down and watch halloween ends sorry halloween the halloween six the curse of uh michael myers i would definitely probably watch the producer's cut you know it's a little bit more coherent and it's better the the pacing is better but again that isn't saying much you know like five it is watchable and it does have its moments you know it's got some good kills and you know i i mean i say I'll, i'll say this about both cuts they are brought down by a needlessly complicated storyline, which you also have to thank Halloween 5 for. You know, I feel like when you com- when you complicate a Halloween film and you just bring in all these different ideas, you do lose a lot of suspense and effectiveness. You know, the first movie is just about a boogeyman stalking and murdering babysitters. That's the movie on paper, but of course it is more than that. I mean, Halloween 6, I think that is a real low point for the for the for the franchise for the original films and you know that's that's how i feel you know it seemed wise for them to sort of retcon that whole storyline and then have a complete sequel to halloween 2 so you 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 have different timelines you have halloween 1 halloween 2 and then you have halloween 3 on its own and then you have you know halloween 1 halloween 2 and then 4 5 and 6 and now and then you ha- and now you also have halloween 1 halloween 2 and halloween h2o and then halloween resurrection but yeah i like halloween h2o a lot uh it is one of my favorite horror movies of the 90s and steve minor who directed uh uh friday the 13th parts 2 and 3 he directed the hell out of this and he brings a little bit of energy back into the uh, into the franchise and also more importantly terror uh, and of course, Jamie Lee Curtis is brought back. I think that is a strong 
and compelling film. You know, everything that, you know, everything that Halloween Resurrection was not. You know, Halloween H2O returns back to the basics of the first Halloween, which is always a good thing to do when you lose your way when making, you know, Michael Myers movies. I think Jamie Lee Curtis gives a very well-rounded performance in this movie. I think she's really engrossing. You know, they touch upon PTSD and trauma and the David Gordon Green films and... Of course, she's great in those movies as well, but I think it was just handled a little bit better in this one, and it's not so in your face with all those, you know, themes of trauma and PTSD and generational grief as the new trilogy is. You know, of course, being a post-Scream, you know, being in a post-Scream world in 1998, this was going to be a pop culture heavy and referential movie, and Kevin Williamson was involved with this film as a producer and also as an uncredited screenwriter. This is an enjoyable and fun sequel. You know, it smartly retcons the whole Thorn storyline, which is great. You have a simple and to the point film about Michael Myers trying to find Jamie Lee Curtis as Laurie Strode, who's hiding out under a different name at a prep school, at a boarding school, you know, boarding school, prep school, whatever, in California. I think that is, you know, I think that's a good sequel. That's a good idea for a sequel. And it's, you know, it's her, you know, realizing she can't run from her fears and she has to fight the monster and face it on her own you know again it was great to have her back as Laurie Strode Jamie Lee Curtis is fantastic and Josh Hartnett was also a great addition as her son John in the film I always like Josh Hartnett it's nice that he's kind of coming back into movies a little bit yeah I mean it is very inspired by Scream for better or worse depending on how you look at it I do think the scene in the movie where um some people are watching well this is on the tv they have Scream 2 but originally they had So I Married an Axe Murderer instead, which is a film with the actor Mike Myers. So they changed it to Scream 2. And they play it in one scene and Adam Arkin and Michelle Williams are in the scene. And it's a little too on the nose for me. Also in the first Scream, they are watching the original Halloween movie. Make of that what you will. But I do come back to the sequel a lot and I do prefer it to the newer ones. Um, you know, Michael, Michael Myers and Laurie Strode, they go toe to toe with one another and she faces, you know, she faces him off. You know, every time when she gets that axe and she stands out, and stands in the middle of the school and it's a big ass wide shot and it's up high and it's night and the music's kicking in and then she just goes... just always gets me so excited and you know the showdown maybe is a bit of 90s slasher fluff but it is satisfying uh, a little bit more satisfying than the showdown in Halloween ends I'll just say that um, yeah seeing how Halloween Resurrection turned out I always felt like they could have ended the original series with H2O I think it's such a cop-out that Michael Myers switched himself with someone else and they had that plan for H2O I just feel like it just kind of ruins that thematic aspect of H2O you know that Laurie Strode killed somebody else instead and you know Michael Myers switched his body with an EMT and cracked his neck so his larynx were broken and he couldn't speak you know and also having Laurie Strode just dying early on in the movie you know takes away any audience in audiences takes away any kind of interest that the audience would have with the movie i know it was jamie lee curtis's decision to be killed off and resurrection was essentially a paycheck for her but they really could have found a better way to keep her in the film or better yet if they if they still decided to kill her off why not have josh harnett come back would have been interesting to see his character come back and 
you know, go and out for revenge against Michael Myers. And it was like, you know, you just felt like there was more to be told with him, you know, given how, where his character is left off in H2O. And no matter how fun it is to see Buster Rhymes karate chop Michael Myers and say that cheesy but stupid line, Trick or treat, motherfucker. It really can't make up for the fact that this is a very uninteresting movie. This movie dies with Laurie Strode in the first few minutes. They did not come back for a sequel. They couldn't really come back for a sequel. Um, I mean, just, you know, the movie made literally no money at the box office. I mean, like, the, at least Halloween H2O was a bigger success. And this movie, I think it had like a $10 million budget and they made about $30 million. So, of course, they were like, hmm, what should we do? Let's remake it. And Rob Zombie remade Halloween in 2007 and it was a huge success. And he made a sequel in 2009, which wasn't as successful again it's a little bit like a halloween 6 problem the director's cut of h2 his his film halloween 2 I was about to say h2o is better than the theatrical cut it's better than the theatrical cut of um the sequel which came out in 2009 um yeah whether what i mean yeah i mean rob zombie and his films you're either gonna like them or hate them you know, people like this film, people like the sequel, people hate the remake and also hate the sequel. But, you know, I like this one. I like the remake. I also kind of like the sequel as well. Um, I think two thirds of the remake is pretty good. Like, you know, before the, you know, the last 40 minutes of the movie is basically like Halloween, but just condensed. Um, I thought Malcolm McDowell is a really good Dr. Samuel Loomis. Um I think Halloween 2 is is very perplexing and there's a lot of ideas rolling around rolling around in that film that don't all connect but I do I do applaud Rob Zombie you know making that film his own and you know trying to bring something new to the franchise which of course David Gordon Green and Danny McBride were doing with their Halloween films which came out in 2018, 2021 and now 2022 I mean, if you didn't already know, John Carpenter, he's one of my favorite directors. You know, he's probably one of the most influential filmmakers of all time. You know, any genre filmmaker has taken some inspiration from him. I think he's brought so much to cinema. And I do like his kind of laid back and no bullshit attitude in Q&As. You know, he has this old school quality that I like. His conveying of atmosphere is something he's really masterful at. Like even some of his weaker movies have their pos positive qualities. You know, that for me is always the cinematography, the mood, and the music. You know, I can listen to his music all day. And he came back to score the new Halloween movies with uh, Daniel Davis and his son, Cody Carpenter. I mean, that's one of the positives I can say about uh, Halloween uh, 2018 and or Halloween H40, as I call it. Halloween Kills and, of course, Halloween Ends. Like, all the music in all three of the films um, is is great. Um when I heard that they had pitched a Halloween, uh, pitched a new Halloween movie to Blumhouse or whoever was who had the rights, uh, this is Danny McBride and David Gordon Green. I was a little bit skeptical. I only know David Gordon Green as a comedy and drama director. I thought the Pineapple Express and Your Highness guy was a very perplexing choice for directing a new Halloween movie, especially with Danny McBride writing it as well. I was just thinking it doesn't really work, but I'm 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 open. You know, when I first watched the the 
Halloween H40 when it came out in 2018, I was a little bit disappointed with it. I was, I just, I don't know. There were some things, there were some, it still has some aspects of the narrative that bother me and stuff. And I've seen it a few, few times since then. And my opinion of it has softened. I, I do. I think I was a bit critical of David Gordon Green's direction, and I felt he wasn't up to the task in directing a horror movie. Like he didn't have what John Carpenter has. I mean, he still doesn't, but he he has done fine work with with the films. Um, with you know, Halloween Ends has some good directorial moments and some good moments of suspense. I mean, he has he's he is good at directing suspense. I think there's some good moments of suspense in all of the films. And he kind of brings that kind of raw American indie cinema style to the Halloween franchise. You know, I feel like Rob Zombie brought that kind of grungy, like, dirty feeling to the Halloween films that he did. What David Gordon Green brought to uh, the his Halloween movies is that he kept things simple like John Carpenter did. Just having a straight sequel to the first Halloween film. Even if I feel like a lot of the ideas that Danny McBride and him and all the other writers that worked on the movies it doesn't always pan out there's always a lot of like weird there's a lot of not weird but a lot of like ideas that don't always connect for me with you know what they're doing with these films but you know it has connected for like a with for a lot of other people who have seen the film and enjoyed them they did retcon a lot of the silliness which was nice it was good you kept things nice and straight and to the point you know, it's this big old proper no holds barred slasher movie with some cool and some cool and gnarly kills. When it tries to be more than that, that's where I feel like the films kind of stumble. It's a little bit too on the nose and very much in your face with its like themes of PTSD and also mob mentality. When you know, especially in Halloween Kills, there is some in- there is a lot of intensity. In, in, in both films and also in Halloween Ends as well. Maybe not so much in Halloween Ends. Um, and I like that. I mean, the opening of Halloween H40 is a strong, intense opening when the podcasters come and Michael's standing there with their back to him and he's like, say something! And you see the old classic Michael Myers mask that makes all the fucking inmates go crazy. It's a, gr- it's a great scene. I mean, there's a bit of like tonal shifts in the movies when comedy is injected into the film. Um, especially in the first one where there's two police officers. One of them's played by uh, special effects makeup artist Christopher Allen Nelson. It's like two police officers sitting in a car and debating a banh mi sandwich. I don't have such a problem as I used to have with that scene, as I do with the rest of the movie, but it does kind of take you out of the movie, and it's a little bit silly. It, you know, it reminded me of the stupid bumbling cops from Halloween 5 with that stupid clown sound effect that was added into the scenes with them in post-production. And that's kind of the issue I have with the David Gordon Green movies. You know, he directs them well enough. There are some awesome kills, and the special effects are on point, as is the score and the cinematography, and some of the performances are really good. But in ti- But at times, they're... There really isn't anything new that, for me, there's nothing really new that he's bringing to the table. You know, there are a lot of nice callbacks and references, but there's not a lot of new territory that McBride and Green take us down. Like, some of the writing is a little bit clunky and contrived, and some of the narrative choices are a little bit hard to wrap your head around. Uh, Particularly in Halloween H40, when um, uh, Haluk uh, uh, Bilgener, who plays Dr. Sartain, the new Loomis... Um, you know, you know, whatever, you know, all his sort of 
motivations and you know what he's trying to do in that film with bringing michael and laurie together i was a bit i, I was a little bit I, I still find that that whole plot point a little bit hard to wrap my head around and uh, speaking of dr samuel loomis i do miss the presence of donald pleasance in the in the first halloween that they did but i really liked it when they brought him back for halloween kills I thought it was some CGI trickery, like the same thing that, thing that they did with Grand Muff Tarkin in Rogue One, but all that was makeup, and I thought that was fantastic. They had a crew member who looked like Donald Pleasance, and they just put makeup on him to make him look like actual Donald Pleasance, and I thought that was very well done, um, even if I feel like the sound editing and the voice acting didn't quite match. I think in Halloween H2O, in the beginning credits, where they have Tom Kane doing uh, the voice work for Dr. Samuel Loomis, I think that works a lot better. You know, I feel like at times the, the the that movie and Halloween Kills and also Halloween Ends, they do try to be deep and meaningful and it does come up a bit short. I don't mind that they try to do that and trying to bring something different to uh, the franchise. I, I You know, they were trying to do something different and trying to recalibrate the series and bring a more down-to-earth feeling to them. I appreciate that again, but basically for the most part, they do go about treading on familiar ground quite a lot and having the same kind of problems that the original sequels had. You know, they, they sometimes do cherry pick some of the best elements and put them into the film and, you know, did the same things again. I mean, Laurie Strode again, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, is described as a walking definition of post-traumatic stress disorder. She experienced a horrible event during the events of the first Halloween where her friends were brutally murdered and she was almost killed herself. She's been preparing for, you know, for 40 years for when the, for the day when Michael Myers would return to Haddonfield and kill him. You know, if he comes after her, you know, I feel like Michael hasn't given her one second of thought over the 40 years he's been locked up. She has burnt every bridge and pushed her family away from her, particularly her daughter, Karen, played by Judy Greer, who was actually pretty good in both movies that she appears in. Her and uh, Robert Longstreet were the MVPs of Halloween Kills. And like Laurie Strode has this really cool like Sarah Connor Terminator 2 aspect about her, which I you know which was the direct opposite of her persona from the first movie you know she was the the quintessential girl next door and in this one she is a damaged woman who no one believes and everyone including her family thinks she's crazy she is driven by her urge to kill the monster the boogeyman michael myers played uh by james uh jude courtney and nick castle uh briefly in some moments i mean jamie lee curtis is wonderful and you know it was it, it has been fun to see her on screen again playing this character that started her her entire career you know she is the ultimate survivor and final girl and in these movies she becomes the hunter she's not going to run anymore like she was in you know like in you know similar to what she does in halloween h2o and she will take on that person that has brought that trauma to her life michael myers comes back in a big bad way you know there's like in the in the in halloween h40 there's like this dean cundy type tracking shot where michael moves through multiple houses and killing a bunch of people and that's one of the best scenes in the movie and i it was such a well choreographed and executed moment and uh you know, David Gordon Green and his crew did a remarkable job in that sequence. Extremely well done and quite memorable. But getting back to Laurie Strode, the main issue I have with these movies is that often Laurie Strode is sidelined is sidelined to focus on other characters that vary in being compelling and fun to watch, and you know, not and then being and then being not so compelling. And you know, in Halloween Kills, she spends a lot of the time in the hospital nursing her wounds, like she did in the first Halloween too. And the movie is more about Anthony Michael Hall playing Tommy Doyle and, and Andy Matichak as Laurie's granddaughter, Allison. You know, the movie focuses a little bit more on those two. And also Judy Greer is, as, um, as, as her daughter, Karen. You know, I think 
some of the characters were better written and utilized in Halloween H40, and they lose a bit of depth in Halloween Kills. And, you know, I think some of them uh, in Halloween Ends don't aren't as interesting as they were in some in the first movie i liked this idea of three generations of strode women coming together to kill michael myers and i i kind of felt like i i wanted more of that because you know a lot of these movies do focus on a lot of redundant characters and i feel like there there were some missed opportunities uh with laurie's arc and there was also an opportunity missed with showing a more realistic portrayal of PTSD and looking into the psychology of Laurie and, you know, what she's really going through and how it is affecting the people in her life. You know, maybe they could have portrayed that a little bit more, you know, they could have portrayed that with a little bit more subtlety. You know, it could have made for a more interesting Halloween film. I mean, you know, something you don't really see in horror movies that much, you know, or at least it hasn't, you know, been portrayed in such in uh, portrayed in such a true to life way halloween and halloween kills halloween age 40 and halloween kills they do seem to be held together by characters being a little bit stupid and both are a little bit driven by an idiot plot that and a lot of gory kills particularly the awesome and cold-blooded uh fireman massacre from halloween kills again that's another cool sequence that david gordon green and his crew uh created and choreographed that 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 sequence is awesome i mean halloween kills is a brutal movie like it's a savage film as robert longstreet says in the uh behind the scenes documentary like it's much more savage and brutal than halloween h40 you know i think i think it might be the goriest halloween movie of of, of all you know it leans very heavily on the style of rob zombies uh, halloween films you know i think there is the argument that it, it was brutal for the sake of being brutal but that's why slasher movies are so popular with audiences if you I mean if you wanted to see a movie where michael myers kills a bunch of people in nasty and creative ways then you are in luck and then then and halloween kills is the movie for you but if you are expecting a film where you want a little bit more out of your halloween film than just kills this isn't the film for you i think i'm a little bit in between both scenarios i mean i got what i wanted but i expected a little bit more you know i feel like it has that it, it, it mean it is a bit of a filler film to you know i feel like having watched halloween ends they could have really condensed both movies into one i mean to quote the line from chernobyl that has now become a bit of a meme not great not terrible either you know there is a lot going on in the great david gordon green halloween movies for better or for worse both movies are trying to be socially aware and socially relevant and reflect the times that we are living in. I appreciate the filmmakers for doing that. And I like that kind of self-reflective approach. It piqued my interest, but I just wish it was a bit more focused and it just, you know, dealt with things in a little bit more of a nuanced way. You know, I like that it gave a, it gave a lot more characteristics to the town of Haddonfield and we see more of the town and its citizens, but you know, maybe it, we, it needed to hone its focus in on the characters that mattered and that, you know, that needed to be focused on the most. You know, Halloween H40 and Halloween H Kills jump around a lot between a lot of characters and around many plot points. Both are under 100, 110 minutes. And from time to time, we veer, we veer away many times from their main selling point. And that main selling point is the three fe main female leads, the Strode family. You know, they really struggle to just primarily focus on them. You know, Laurie, you know, Laurie, Karen, and Allison, you know, when the f movie focuses on them, both are at their strong, like, you know, all the films are at their strongest, more so with Halloween H40 and Halloween Kills, uh, Halloween Ends is a little, I'll get to that in a second, you know, but sadly, to some degree, these great actresses 
are given little to nothing to do and the screenplay in some ways takes away some personality and intelligence with each film you know they aren't as well-rounded as they were in halloween h40 i mean judy greer is you know is the one that has the best scenes in halloween kills you know and i wish she was in the and i think i wish she was more in the film as well as as Jamie Lee Curtis, you know, Halloween Kills brings a lot of legacy characters back, like Nancy Stevens as Marion Chambers, Kyle Richards as Lindsay Wallace, and Charles Cyphers as the former sheriff of Haddonfield, Lee Brackett. The only person who got left out of the out of the, who got left out of the reunion was Brian Andrews, who played Tommy Doyle in the first film. And this time around, he wasn't played by him or played by Paul Rudd like he was in Halloween Six. You know, this time he was played by former Rat Pack member Anthony Michael Hall, who has an extremely memorable scene in a bar fairly non-violent scene you know even though he does get a bit of cheesy dialogue to say and he does have a lot of cheesy dialogue in halloween kills you get all these people back to play these fan favorites and memorable characters and the filmmakers really don't do anything with them especially nancy stevens who was who was brought back after halloween h2o just to be killed off just like how she was in that movie you know, Robert Longstreet, who plays Lonnie Elam, gives the best performance of the movie, and it's easy to see why he's a member of, you know, Mike Fal- uh, Mike Flanagan's troupe of actors. You know, he brings the most out of that thankless role, you know, of what could be seen as a thankless role, and, you know, a character that was just seen br- briefly in the first Halloween, and he gives Lonnie a lot of nuance, which the David Gordon Green movies do lack, you know. The movies have interesting ideas going on going on for them, and they play around with some heavy and timely themes, but the filmmakers just fumble with them. I mean, say what you will about the Rob Zombie Halloween films, even though there are some ideas that aren't properly executed, he was still trying to do something different, particularly with Halloween H... Sorry, Halloween 2, which came out in 2009. You know, whether you liked what he did or not depends on the viewer. But, you know, H40 and Halloween Kills are at their core fun and intense slasher films. And I live for good, fun, and bloody horror movies. But at the same time, it's doing so much and taking attention away from what is, you know, I feel actually important and, you know, what I would like the film to focus on. And Halloween Ends, you know, has the same sort of issue. You know, and also, you know, it's just... It, it, the, the films, they, 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 they don't feel what they, the maker, the filmmakers behind them have been hyping up. You know, that's just what I feel. You know, to put it bluntly, they are movies that really struggle with what they want to achieve and do. You know, I feel like now with Halloween Ends released, I can kind of see what they were doing and they do kind of connect together in some way. But yeah, they just, they they could have been a lot, they, they, they weren't exactly what I expected them to be. I mean, yeah, I mean, through the ups, its ups and downs, the Halloween franchise and the movies similar to it, they, you know, they've defined a generation and they've defined the horror genre itself. You know, whether the movies have been good or bad, I think this franchise is one of my favorites. It still is. And I like how much it is given to the fans. I mean, I like, you know, what people can get from these movies. And, you know, I don't know whether there will be more after Halloween ends. We, I know that we won't be getting Jamie Lee Curtis back as Laurie Strode and... I think for me, this franchise should come to an end. I, I mean, I don't know where they can go from here. You know, much in the same way I look at the Nightmare on Elm, Elm Street franchise, you know, they ended at a logical closure point more than the Friday the 13th franchise did. You know, depending on the limitations and the lore and the narrative, you know, there are points in franchises where you have, you, you know, you've taken them as far as you can. And, you know, so maybe this is the end of Michael Myers. 
maybe this is the end of Halloween. Who knows? But we still will think of him anytime we are walking down an empty street during the day or at night and, you know, be wary that there is someone following and watching us. Sometimes you can't kill the boogeyman. He lives on in some form or another, purely and simply evil, as the late, great Dr. Loomis said. I can't remember when or where this was said. I think this was last year or maybe it was this year. I'm not quite sure. Anyways, it doesn't really matter. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis said in an interview, I even think before Halloween Ends was even in production, that the final film in the, in the David Gordon Green requill trilogy would and make people angry. I thought this was a very perplexing thing to say. I'm using the word perplexing again. And an interesting way to market her new film where she plays Laurie Strode for one last time. I think this in many ways, you know, this is the final Halloween film, you know, without spoiling it for anyone who hasn't seen it yet. And I'm not going to spoil it. I'm not going to go into spoilers. I'm just going to give my personal opinion about it. Um, You know, having seen Halloween Ends and thinking about what Jamie Lee Curtis said about it, she was right. Halloween Ends will make people angry. Or not, depending on your point of view of the film. Still, it and it and it fucking has. It it is going to split audiences and horror fans way down the middle. I've seen a bunch of people really hate this movie, be very confused by it, or they really like it. You know, I, I don't. You know, I I'm, I'm happy that people liked it more than I did. You know, it's if you if if you found something in Halloween Ends that you connected with and liked more than I did, then you know that's great. But sadly, that did not work for me. You know, I've, of course, like I've said, I've had my reservations about the David Gordon Green films. You know, David, uh, Danny, uh, David Gordon Green and Danny McBride have worked on them and in and, and, and the right. And they both collaborated on the screenplays. I still chuckle at the fact that the Pineapple, Pineapple Express guys wrote and made a Halloween film with, with Blumhouse. But, you know, congratulations and all power to them. You know, Blumhouse is a production company that has been behind many commercially successful horror films one of which was the black phone which came out this year which i thought was infinitely better than than this movie i have changed my tune about the other two films in the trilogy halloween h40 and the sequel halloween kills which is a like i said a very fast-paced and brutally savage movie i highly doubt i will change my tune about halloween ends maybe i don't know i think i'll wait till it comes out on blu-ray or streaming and give it a watch again and kind of see if my opinion on the film changes um i mean i'm not as angry about the film as i was when i came out of the cinema after watching it i have like softened a little bit i still have my problems with it but i i don't like i i'm just like i i kind of accept it for what it is i'm very content with what the film is but you know i mean you know maybe in the near future i i will watch it again when it comes out on blu-ray or whatever i mean i do agree with the scream queen Halloween ends will make you angry. It may do or it may not. Cinema is subjective and we can't all like hate the same things. You know, discourse over films can be fun with people, you know, online or in person, but they should never be demeaning and cruel. 
You should never go after someone for liking a film that you didn't or hating a film that you liked. Like, just don't do that. Like, you know, whether, you know... I was, I was, I mean, angry, you know, maybe I was a bit angry with Halloween Ends, but I was mostly disappointed. And worse, I was bored by it. It was like watching, it was watching, it was like... It was like watching Exorcist 2, The Heretic, all over again. I just think it was really kind of... I mean, this was kind of a bad movie. I mean, a little bit. You know, okay. I'll just give like a brief synopsis of the film. So the film takes place about four years after Halloween Kills, when Michael Myers returned to Haddonfield and went on a big, brutal, bloody rampage. Um, Laurie Strode, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, has moved on, and she's put the boogeyman behind her and is writing her memoir on her trauma, or as or trauma as Jamie Lee, as it's heard coming out of Jamie Lee Curtis's mouth. Um, the, you know, she's moving on from the town and of Michael. She's raising her granddaughter, Allison, by, played again by Andy Matichak. Uh Karen, who was played by Judy Greer, died at the end of Halloween Kills. I think some people, including me, thought like, oh, she might still be alive. Maybe Michael Myers will keep her hostage or whatever. I don't know. Uh, yeah, Lindsay Wallace, uh, played by Kyle Richards, is back. Will Patton's Frank Hawkins is back, who I was surprised to see in Halloween Kills because I thought he was dead in the first one after getting his neck slashed and run over by a car. Some people have, like, a tendency to kind of feel like they're dead, but then they come back. You know, there's one character from Halloween Kills and in, in the first Halloween, H40, they're in all three films, and I thought they died in Halloween Kills. It's, it's very strange. Um, yeah, I think, you know, things in the town of Haddonfield have been somewhat peaceful, but they're still there. There is this unease and... You know, there's these small amounts of tragedy that are still happening. You know, Michael hasn't been seen since the conclusion of Halloween Kills, where a lot of people were left dead. And uh, we're introduced to a new character, played by uh, Rohan, Rohan Campbell, uh, a character called Corey Cunningham, who becomes the town's public enemy number one. And, a, and, the, and he becomes, a you know, he becomes the town pariah, like Laurie Strode was, uh, following a tragic event in his life where a boy... Uh, dies in his care a boy who he was babysitting who accidentally dies he's arrested but he's not like he's you know but he's he's not charged but he still stays in the town and he becomes this uh, town pariah and everyone kind of hates him for it and it all builds to a culmination of predator and prey where michael myers and laurie strode duke it out one last time i just wish it was as satisfying as i hoped it would initially be I am going to avoid spoiling the film as best I can. I will tip down around a few plot points. I don't want to ruin it for people who are still planning on watching it or haven't seen it yet. Maybe you will like it more than I did. Who knows where you will land. Um, the opening of the film is really fucking strong. I, th there's an interesting vibe that David Gordon Green conjures up in the film's prologue. You know, plus there is a very fun but very on-the-nose on the reference to another classic John Carpenter film, which may or may not take you out of the film, but I still... I understand why that reference was in there. This is a very quiet and somber film at times, and there's a very quiet and somber feeling that has clouded over Haddonfield since Michael last came to town. You can feel that, and I liked that. I liked that aspect. You know, it's one of the few aspects of the film that I really liked. Like, everything is brimming with a very quiet unease where one little thing could set everything off and people's paranoia and fear comes to the surface, you know, but without all the evil dies tonight chants and all that silliness. And it's effective and suspenseful and David Gordon Green directs it very well. You know, the prologue has one of the 
one of the two times where I actually jumped when watching the film. After that, all the scares throughout the film feel, you know, very tepid at best, despite some decent kills. But nothing on the creative and ferociously barbaric level of Halloween kills. A near bloodless film like the, uh, like the, like the first Halloween in 1978. But it does have one darkly comedic but gory moment, um, involving a tongue in the sort of about three quarters of the way through the movie. Um, I feel like the strongest part of the film is the first 20, 30 or so minutes of the film. You know, everyone is trying to get by and leave the past behind them and get on with their lives. You know, given how we have lived through the worst of the pandemic, that felt relatable. You know, everything is ready to boil over at one thrust of a blade of a big kitchen knife. After that, after the sort of, you know, after the first 20 or 30 so minutes of the movie... Halloween ends becomes very messy and the narrative feels strained of what it is trying to say and do. I think this trilogy by David Gordon Green and Danny McBride has bitten off a bit more than they can chew and they really try to force these clumsily handled thematic moments and they really struggle in trying to define what these movies really want to be and they're playing around with so many things. I get it, but it doesn't it didn't quite connect with me. You know, watching Halloween Ends, it reminded me a little bit of the disappointment I had when watching uh, Game of Thrones Season 8 or even Star Wars Episode 9, The Rise of Skywalker. It felt like all these pieces of pop culture wrapped into, like, one lackluster film. A lackluster film that does little to, to, to excite and engage. That's how I feel, at least. David Gordon Green and his crew, they have made a very competently produced film. There's a nice score by John Carpenter, Daniel Dales, and Cody Carpenter. Jamie Lee Curtis does, you know, great, solid work with what she's given. Plus, Michael Simmons' cinematography and Christopher Nelson's special effects work are on point. But the screenplay by from David Gordon Green, uh, Danny McBride, Chris Bernier, and Paul Brad Logan lets the side down. I know I've used that expression again, uh, but... But yeah, but anyway, th they do take some big, mighty and ambitious swings with the narrative. I don't mind that they made them. But the fact that this is the so-called final film, everything feels forced and nothing felt earned. And it all feels haphazard at best, which is basically how I feel about how David Benioff and D.B. Weiss ended Game of Thrones. Like everything forced, everything feels forced into Halloween ends and nothing feels genuinely natural. Logic is really thrown out of the window, and, like, I, I, I don't... I mean, I understand and see the choices that are made, but from my perspective, they don't all work. Some characters are so one-dimensional and have no personality to them. Like, some of the characters are so one-dimensional, and they have no personality to them whatsoever, not like how they were in the other two films. And without spoiling anything, some key players of the Halloween franchise don't get enough screen time in Halloween Ends. They don't get enough screen time for, for my liking. You know, you know, you, you almost feel like David Gordon Green and co. forget they were, you know, you almost feel like they forgot they were making a Halloween movie with Michael Myers. You know, this feels like the Corey Cunningham show and Rowan Campbell was fine in the film. He just needed to be written and developed better. He could have benefited from being featured in one of the other films. You know, his whole plotline feels inspired by, you know, it, it is basically inspired by Stephen King's Christine. Like, despite a really strong start, Halloween ends derails very quickly. And I was left bored and uninterested. 
I mean, I was really bored with this movie. I was just, I, I, I was just kind of like, oh my god, I would just want this film to get exciting at least. Just give me some excitement. You know, scenes where I should have been jumping in my seat with excitement and fright while pumping my fist in the air left me feeling dispassionate. Like some moments I found laughable and not in a good way. You know, this is a weak, dull mess of a film. You know, and I, I mean, I, and I mean, as I talk, I'm, I'm, as I said, I'm less angry with it. I've done my venting through, you know, writing my review of it on my blog and, you know, talking about it now and thinking about it and talking about it with other people online. I mean, I'm, I'm content with what the film is. I'm not going to be one of these people that buys the Blu-ray and then burns it, you know, after purchasing it. I'm not that petty. I will see it again and see if my opinion changes, whether on DVD, Blu-ray or streaming. You know, I've done that for the other films. From my perspective, you could have easily condensed Halloween ends and kills together. It could have been, it could have been done. I'm not going to say the makers of this film are hacks because they are talented people more talented than i am but the film that they made and hyped up and promised these past months was not what i watched in the cinema recently this just felt like a very pointless endeavor like the whole film just felt kind of pointless you know it was a film that you know was devoid of any real suspense and logic this was not a satisfying conclusion it was not the satisfying conclusion that i hoped for you know, not just for the franchise, but for the whole, the, the, the requel trilogy, you know, which has been, in, which has been fine and enjoyable at best, maybe a bit overrated. I mean, if this is the final Halloween film, and I really hope it is, because, you know, given how it ends, like, where the fuck do you go from here? You know, but if it is the end of the franchise, they really went out with an absolute whimper. They didn't go out with a bang. They went out with a quiet-ass whimper. You know, and I feel like Jamie Lee Curtis and the rest of the cast, you know, even Andy Matichak, who, you know, just, who's very one-dimensional in the, in the movie. Like, all, and, and also, like, Kyle Richards as Lindsay Wallace has absolutely nothing to do with this film. If you cut her out, it, it wouldn't make any difference. You know, I just feel like Jamie Lee Curtis and the rest of the cast, they deserve better. They deserved a better and more well-written film to bow out on. That's how I feel. You know, I'll end my review of the movie, you know, by saying this. I mean, sorry if this insults anyone. Halloween Ends does, in many ways, make some of the so-called worst films in the franchise look like masterpieces in comparison. Again, that's my opinion. I've seen a lot of people really digging and liking this film, and I get it. I just, I just wasn't really on board with it. I'm sorry. Maybe I might be a bit on board with it again when it comes out on blu-ray and streaming now that i know what the film is but yeah i don't know maybe i need to watch all three films in one go just to get that sense of it but i don't know it was yeah i don't know that's my review i guess <laughs> thank you so much for listening to me ramble on about the halloween franchise and about halloween ends i don't think there's going to be such a huge gap uh, for the next episode, I will try to get Adam in on an episode uh, where we'll probably do a top 10 or talk about something. We'll be talking about movies, yeah, of course, but yeah, we'll. If you follow us on our Twitter page at Homes Movies Pod, you can, um, you'll see, we'll be posting about when, if, what, what next episode we'll be doing and everything like that. But yeah, um, do, yeah, check us out on our uh, Twitter page. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at Fabricius91. 
Adam is the Northampton Dane. We're both on Instagram, Anders F. Holmes, Adam.h.f.homes. You can send us an email to homesmoviespodcast at gmail.com. We also have a WordPress blog that you can check out. Um, all that is in the uh, Linktree link, so you can uh, check it out there. Um, thank you so much for listening. Apologies if this is this has been a very long uh, slog to get through. I just had a lot to say, and um, I hope it was fun and interesting for you. Um, yeah, I um, yeah, I'm not going to stop anyone from going out to see Halloween Ends. I'm not going to be like that. Um, if you want to watch the movie, go watch it. And if and if you like it, great. If you didn't like it, sorry you didn't like it. We can you know talk about it together. But anyway. Thank you so much for uh, listening to this episode. I've been Anders Holmes. Uh, enjoy the rest of uh, October and uh, enjoy the rest of Scary Movie Month and uh, watch and just embrace the greatness of the horror genre. Thank you so much. Good day and or good night, depending on what day you are listening to this episode. <laughs> <laughs>